0: Genesis chapter 2 and we're studying this morning verses 4 to 14 which we read Genesis 2 verses 4 to 14 and we're thinking together this morning about a place called paradise, a place called paradise. I'm sure most of us have seen movies or TV programs that begin with the camera zooming in on one particular person or place Maybe the first thing you see at the beginning is a wide angle on a busy city. Lots of buildings, lots of traffic, lots of people. But the camera zooms in on one road in particular. And so you begin to pay attention to the road. The camera zooms in further and further until it's focused on one car. And so you follow the car, the camera follows the car wherever it goes. And eventually... The driver gets out, and you zoom in even further, and you see the man's face, the face of the main character of the story. And by zooming in like that for just a few seconds, the storyteller has told you where this man lives, what type of car he drives, what he looks like, and now you're going to see the story unfold. Well, the book of Genesis is a book that zooms in tighter and tighter as the chapters go by. Genesis 1.1 begins with the wide angle so to speak. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The whole universe. But out of the whole universe Moses focuses our attention on one particular planet. Planet earth and what God did with it. Just notice the last line of verse 4. The earth and the heavens it says. The earth and the heavens. And the heavens. Up until now, we've read about the heavens and the earth, but now in chapter 2, the earth is mentioned first because this is where our attention is zooming in. And in particular, in Genesis 2, we zoom in on a place called Eden, or as the Greek translation of the Old Testament described it, paradise. Paradise. We zoom in there because this is where God places men and women. The creatures that he is most interested in. The creatures that he has made in his image. Genesis 2 describes the first home of our first parents, Adam and Eve. A perfect place where they enjoyed perfect fellowship with their perfect God. And so one of the key words today is that word dwell. A place where God dwells. And boys and girls, if you see uh, your sheet today, you've... Some sentences to fill in, and if you're listening carefully, you'll be able to hear. uh, You'll be able to hear all the missing words mentioned at some point this morning. Maybe your mums and dads can help you with it as well. So we're thinking about this particular place that Genesis two focuses on, and we know, of course, that there is no perfect place on earth anymore because of our sin. But before he died on the cross, Jesus turned to one of the men being crucified beside him, and he said, "Today." You will be with me in paradise. Paradise. And so, although paradise has been lost through Jesus Christ, friends, there is a future paradise that we can enjoy again. And we can know a little bit about that paradise, that future paradise, by studying the original paradise that's described in Genesis 2. And so there are two main things I want us to think about this morning as we study this part of Genesis. First of all, we're going to think about God's personal care in creating man. God's personal care in creating man. Some people take issue with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and how different they seem to be. Genesis 1 describes how God created everything else before he created human beings. Genesis 2 seems to reverse the order. Uh, Verse 5 there talks about there being no bush of the field and no plant of the field had sprung up. And then Genesis Genesis 2 verse 7 says that God created the man at that point. And some people say, well weren't all of these things created before human beings according to Genesis 1? Why does the order seem to change in Genesis 2 Well again it's because Genesis 2 is not talking about the whole planet. It's talking about one particular place on the planet. A place called Eden. Notice verse 5 says that there was no man to work the ground. And I think it's best that the word ground there. That we understand it as referring to a specific place on the earth. The place where God would eventually put Adam and Eve. If you look on down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. So the ground friends in verse 5 is a particular place that God was saving for a particular purpose. The ground that he wanted Adam eventually to cultivate where shrubs and plants would grow as a result of the work of human beings. So having zoomed in on this particular place Moses tells us about how God made the first man. If you look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. Now notice first of all how God is described in that verse. He's described as the Lord God. And most if not all of our English Bibles will have the word Lord there in capital letters. That's the translation of the word Yahweh in the original. The the personal name of God that we see all through the Old Testament. And this is the first time, Genesis 2 is the first time that we see it used. It's the same name that God will use when he speaks to people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the people of Israel. Yahweh. It means something along the lines of I am who I am. It's a name that he only reveals to his chosen people. To people that he has a personal relationship with. In Genesis chapter 1 he's only described as God. And that word in the original emphasizes it means that he is all powerful. And that was a very appropriate word for Genesis chapter 1 as we read of God creating all things out of nothing, effortless, effortlessly, miraculously. But in chapter 2, because we're zooming in on God's relationship with man, a different name for God is used. A name that emphasises, friends, that God wants a special, unique relationship with human beings that he doesn't have with trees or badgers or daffodils. And so now he is the Lord, Yahweh, God. In fact, the only time that he's described as God, again, in chapters 2 to 3, is when Satan comes and speaks to Eve. And he says, he doesn't say, "Did, did, did the Lord God actually say? Satan says, did God actually say? See, friends, Satan doesn't want us to enjoy a personal, close relationship with Yahweh. He wants us to think of God as impersonal and distant and not that trustworthy and not that interested in us. But for those who know him and trust him, he is Yahweh, the God of unchanging, steadfast covenant love. So look how verse 7 describes how. The Lord God made man. It says the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And the word formed there is a word that describes the work of a potter or an artist. Imagine a potter sitting down at his wheel with a lump of clay. He works with the clay. He moves it around. He, uh, he, his hands move across it and around it. Thoughtfully, purposefully, carefully, until he has made something beautiful. And friends, this choice of word emphasizes to us that God took time and effort in creating human beings. He took special pleasure and care in it. He formed us with personal care. You notice it says that God created man of dust from the ground. A few hundred years ago, Uh, The world's leading scientists would have scoffed at that. They'd have said it's ridiculous to think that human flesh is the dust of the ground. But modern science agrees with Genesis 2 verse 7. That we are made up of calcium and carbon and phosphorus and magnesium. The dust of the earth. The same stuff that's all around us. So it says that God formed us. And then the other word that verse 7 uses that's noteworthy. It says he breathed. He breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. And again, friends, this is describing something personal and unique. That word breath in the Old Testament is very closely tied to the word spirit. This is God not only causing the man to come to life. This is God giving the man a soul. This is God putting a spirit within us. Giving us Spiritual life as well as physical life. There aren't many people, I hope anyway, there aren't many people that you touch with your lips. uh, Your spouse, your parents, your children. Maybe on the rare occasion that you have to suddenly give someone mouth to mouth resuscitation. But that's about it. It's an intimate thing to, to breathe or, or to, touch, to touch your mouth and someone else's. It's an act of giving yourself to them in love and in trust. Friends, that's how God chose to impart life to human beings. He could have zapped us into existence with a proverbial snap of his fingers. But he didn't. Yahweh chose to form us from the dust of the earth... And to breathe into us the breath of life. He formed us and he breathed into us. Two important things that this teaches us about ourselves as human beings. First of all we should care about our bodies. We should care about our bodies. The attitude of many people today is that our bodies are not really who we are. You hear particularly in the... Uh, in the uh, transgender movement today, you hear talk about someone being trapped in the wrong type of body. The idea is that we live inside our bodies, but we can make use of them whatever way we want, or we can ignore the way that they are, if we, if we really want to. They're not really part of our identity; they're they're just biomechanical tools to use as we please. And so, some people suggest use your body to get sexual pleasure with. Whoever you like, use it to become or to express whatever gender you feel yourself to be. Use it to display slogans or artwork that you feel attached to. Use it to consume food or drink in excessive amounts, whatever, whether it does you long-term harm or not. Part of the result of, of all of that, friends, is that there are more lonely and broken and hurting people in our society than there have been for decades. Partly because we don't have a proper understanding and theology of our, of our physical identity, of, our, of what it means to be human in a physical sense. We don't realize that our bodies are a fundamental God-given part of who we are. Nancy Piercy has written an excellent book. I uh, would highly recommend it if you want to think more about this. It's called "Love Thy Body." Uh, She says the Bible does not separate the body off into a lower level of importance. Instead, she says the body is intrinsic to the human person. To be made in God's image, friends, to be made personally by Yahweh is to have been made with a physical body. A body that he has designed just for you. He has determined what height we are what our skin colour is, what our hair colour is. He has determined how athletic we are or not. He has determined everything about our our, our physical existence. It's part of who we are. And so what we do with it matters. And we should only do with it what brings glory to our creator. We should care about our bodies. Secondly, given the, the personal care with which God made us, we should also care about our souls. We should care about our souls. God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. God has made us not just with a mind and a body, but with a soul or a spirit. And that being the case, friends, if being human means having a soul as well as a body, then logically we won't be getting the most out of our human existence. If we don't care about our souls. Imagine you had a brand new top of the range smartphone, whether it was Android or Apple, take your pick, I'll not get into the debate over that just at the minute. But whatever whatever you deem to be the, the best phone out there, imagine you had it. Imagine you only used the smartphone to make phone calls or to send and receive text messages. You would be making some use of the phone, but you wouldn't be making full use of it. That phone can be your map when you're driving the car. It can be your camera when you want to take a picture. It, it, can, it can be a TV when you want to watch your favourite show. You can catch up on sermons you've missed on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can, uh, you can use it as your Bible if you need to. You're not fully experiencing the phone if you only use it for a couple of tasks. And similarly, friends, as human beings, we have souls designed for a relationship with the Lord God who personally, lovingly made us. And if you don't make full use of that, you're not getting the most out of what it means to be human. Following Prince Philip's death on Friday, I I, I was reminded of an episode of The Crown, the the fictionalised TV show, about the royal family. Uh, And the particular episode that came to mind was set in 1969 when the Queen and Prince Philip met some of the astronauts who uh, had gone to the moon not long before that. And in the episode, Philip is very keen to meet these astronauts. He's been thinking a lot about the the incredible journey that they made to the moon. But after speaking to them, he's disappointed to realise these men didn't have any kind of meaningful spiritual experience. They didn't suddenly discover the meaning of life by travelling to the moon. There were no profound discoveries to share. And Philip is left with a sense of dissatisfaction, wondering about the real purpose of human existence. Johnny Wilkinson, who kicked the match-winning points of England's 2003 Rugby World Cup triumph. He said that after the matches he walked around the stadium celebrating with his teammates and the fans. He couldn't escape the thought going over and over in his mind. Is this it? Is this it? A lifelong achievement. All that hard work and effort. Why doesn't it feel better than this? The book of Ecclesiastes describes such feelings as that friends as a sense of meaninglessness. That if all we have is work and food and drink and entertainment and great achievements. Like going to the moon or winning the world cup even. Nonetheless our souls will remain dissatisfied. Because they are made for more. They are made for fellowship with God. And so we all need to have God do for us what he did for our forefather Adam. We need new life. Breathed into us by God the Holy Spirit. The New Testament describes this several times as being born again. And a bit like that mouth to mouth resuscitation that we mentioned. It's what happens when Jesus Christ revives our souls. And births new life in our souls. How do we know we have that new life? Well how do we know when a newborn baby has arrived safely. We we hear them cry out. For nourishment, And if we are born again by the power of, of Jesus Christ, we will cry out to God in repentance of sin. We will have an appetite, a spiritual hunger for his word. We will have desires that we didn't used to have, that people who don't know and love the Lord Jesus still don't have. A desire for his word, a desire to be with his people, a desire for worship, a desire to make Christ known to others. These are the marks of a revived soul, a soul alive, a soul enjoying personal relationship with God, a soul experiencing all that it means to be human. Is that the case for you today? Can you say with the psalmist, as we read earlier, that God satisfies my hungry soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things? So the personal care that God took in creating man. But secondly and finally today, the perfect place that God provided for man. The perfect place that God provided for man. It's strangely easy to get the wrong idea when we hear people talk about the Garden of Eden. Uh, Maybe we think of a garden no bigger than our own. I was getting a little bit more acquainted with the man's garden yesterday before the snow started. Uh, And maybe when we hear Garden of Eden, we think of whatever size our garden happens to be. Uh, Maybe it's a a small, square little area. Maybe some grass, a few flowers, the odd tree. That's not what the garden in Eden was like, friends. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Notice not a garden called Eden. A garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Notice friends the garden was only one part. Albeit a very special part. But only one part of a wider region called Eden. The whole of Eden was probably a huge area. How do we know that? we well, look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight, well, how many trees is that? Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, countless number of trees. And they were all part of this beautiful, perfect place that God created. The name Eden means pleasure or delight. One commentator says that the word also can mean abundant waters. Abundant waters. And that's what we see described for us in the rest of the passage. The picture we have here is that not only was Eden beautiful in itself, a beautiful place to be, but it was a place that nourished and sustained maybe the whole earth. Look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And it goes on to name these rivers and and the routes that they traversed and some of the, the places, the, the beautiful gold and stones and various things that were to be found across the wider landscape. Now those verses, friends, aren't, they're not intended as, as a map for us uh, for us to go today and, and find Eden. Uh, the fact is that we don't know where Eden was and wherever it was it's not there now. Uh, the whole geography of the earth has been drastically changed as a result of the flood, as we'll see later in Genesis. Uh, And that includes where these rivers are and, and how they flow. But what this does tell us, friends, is that Eden was a source of life and nourishment for the whole earth. Four great rivers, plenty of fresh water flowed out of Eden. All the trees with all the fruit you could ever need and hope to enjoy were in Eden. And at the heart of Eden was a special place, a garden, a paradise, where God chose to specially dwell with human beings. Genesis 3 verse 8 tells us that after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell, Genesis 3 8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And friends, that verse describes how it had always been up until Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. God would come to the Garden. God would walk and talk and have fellowship with Adam and Eve. This is one of the great themes of the whole Bible, of course. God dwelling with his people and and it's a theme that continues even after the fall. As God led the Israelites out of Egypt, God commanded them to construct a tabernacle, a huge tent, which would be at the center of the Israelite camp, in which the priests would offer sacrifices to God. Uh, And centuries later, God commanded Solomon via his father, King David, to construct a permanent building in Jerusalem, the temple, the temple for the same purpose. And in both the tabernacle and the temple, friends, God's presence would specially dwell with his people. The glory cloud of of the Old Testament, the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt, that cloud came to rest both in the tabernacle when it was first finished and also in the temple in Jerusalem when it was first finished. God came down to dwell with his people. And what's interesting about both the tabernacle and the temple, friends, is that they included symbols and images that reminded God's people about the garden in Eden. The two doors at the main entrance of Solomon's temple had the carvings of trees upon them, and so when you opened the doors, it was like walking through or past a set of trees. First Kings six thirty-five tells us that it says that they had cherubim and palm trees and open flowers carved into them. And there were more cherubim and palm trees and open flowers carved into the inside walls of the temple as well as the lampstands along each wall. The lampstands were designed to look like trees. At the very heart of Eden was a particularly special place, the garden. And likewise at the heart of the tabernacle and the temple was a particularly special place, the holy of holies. In which was the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's presence was said to dwell on earth. Where the high priest was permitted once a year. To sprinkle blood on the Ark for the people's sin. So friends you see what Eden and the temple were teaching. What they still teach us today. That the Lord God Yahweh chooses to dwell with his people. And despite our fall into sin and our banishment from Eden. Eden. The very design of the temple was a message from God that paradise could be regained. That what had gone wrong could be put right. That what had been lost could be experienced again. And since the days of the temple in Jerusalem, God has done something even more incredible to welcome us into his presence. God chose to dwell with us by becoming a human man himself. John 1 famously describes the coming of Jesus by saying the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt could also be tabernacled among us. Jesus is the, the living tabernacle come down from heaven to dwell with us. Jesus has bridged the gap that opened up between God and human beings because of our sin The closeness that we read about in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We know that it didn't last. We know what's coming in Genesis 3. How Adam and Eve were driven away from the presence of God. But Jesus came to close the gap. Our sin separates us from God. Jesus came to draw us back to God. By taking that punishment of separation from God himself on the cross. Jesus today, of course, is risen and reigning in heaven, so where does God dwell with his people now? If it's not in Eden or in a physical temple, if Jesus himself isn't walking the earth, how does God dwell with us? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? What he's saying is that anyone who has been born again, who has had that new life breathed into them that we thought about earlier, We become a dwelling place for God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ by his spirit is with us at all times. He's with us as we work in the office or the classroom. He's with us in our family living room. He's with us when we go to school. He's especially present with us when we gather together for worship. It's impossible, friends, to be socially distanced from the Lord Jesus Christ... He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He has promised his presence with us forever if our trust is in him. And just as we close, what about paradise? What about getting back to that perfect place, that permanently perfect place? As wonderful as it is to have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians... Our lives are still a struggle. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you get to enter into a a perfect place. Free of pain and mourning and illness and lockdown. What about paradise? Well the Bible concludes as we read earlier. By describing something like a new Eden. Which we will finally fully enjoy someday. It's described as a garden in Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. What those passages tell us, friends, is that one day paradise will come back to earth. Like Genesis and the Gospels, they tell us that paradise is the personal presence of God on earth with his people. And if our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom then we can look forward to that unbroken undisrupted perfect enjoyment of life with him and his people forever. And so some questions for you today. Are you living human existence to the full? Do you have a soul that has been revived and restored? That has the breath of life Truly in it. Are you trusting in the God. Who became flesh and dwelt with us. And who will one day bring us. Bring his throne rather down onto earth. For us to dwell with him. Forever. Are you living human life to the fullest. Not by. By particular experiences. Or achievements that might forever be beyond us. But by feeding your soul. With God's word. Living alongside God's people seeking his presence as we worship him together. Amen.